Our scripture reading this morning comes from Hebrews chapter 2. As you're turning there, the children can be dismissed to head upstairs to the children's chapel. They will be there for the remainder of our time together here. We are continuing in our series, Let Us Draw Near, a study in the book of Hebrews. We're in chapter 2 today, starting in verse 1. If you're using a pew Bible today, that's page 1001, 1001. Hebrews chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a word, uh, received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God, who bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit, distributed according to His will. This is the word of the Lord. This morning at the close of our service, we'll come to the Lord's table, or actually it will come to you and it will be dispersed among you today. If you're visiting with us or you're new among us, we, uh, we celebrate the Lord's Supper the first Sunday of every month as much as possible and uh, have open communion. You need not be a member here at Richland to partake. We only ask that you take the invitation that's in the bulletin this morning and reflect on it and live under it as you come the table and partake of these elements. Before we do that, before we distribute them this morning, I want us to look at Hebrews again, Hebrews chapter 2 specifically, but remember what we did in chapter 1. In chapter 1, we spent a number of weeks, and as we walked through chapter 1, there were no commands there. Not once are we told to do anything in chapter 1, really just to listen and to hear the declaration of the writer of Hebrews. He's writing to these Jewish Christians about the excellencies of the Son. And he says in that, God, after speaking in, in many ways and in many times uh, to the prophets, he now has spoken in his Son. His final declaration and his final word to the world is by his Son, the coming of his Son who is God, as we saw last week. This Son, who is God, made the world. He's the heir of all things. He's the radiance of God's glory. He upholds all things by the word of His power. I couldn't help but think, even as we were singing that song, the center, that you hold all things together. That's not just somebody's idea. It flows right out of Hebrews that that he holds all things together by the word of his power. There's a, there's a sustaining, creating, holding together of everything, of you, yourself, this morning, by this Son. And after he made purification for sin, the Scripture says in chapter 1 that he sat down at the right hand of majesty and that he is worshipped by the angels which means he's God. We ended last week in worship, in worshiping Christ. Christianity is the only religion that worships Christ. 
Now, there are other world religions that give great credence to Christ, but they stop short of worship. Judaism would talk about him in many places as being a great prophet, but they would know what the ramifications of worship are, and they wouldn't do it. Worship is for God alone. They wouldn't worship Jesus. Um, The Muslim faith has a place for Jesus, a high and exalted place for him, but short of of God, there's only one God, they would say Allah. And Jesus Christ is not that God. And there are all kinds of world religions that will talk about Jesus being a good moral teacher. But they they stop short of worship. Only Christianity worships Jesus. And the inference of worshiping Jesus is he must be God. And that's what Hebrews chapter 1 is about. He is God, and it's right to worship Him. And we should worship Him. And then in chapter 2, a shift happens. He goes in chapter 1 of of declaring the excellencies of Christ. And the bottom line we end with, He's God, worthy of our worship. But then it says in chapter 2 in verse 1, Therefore, and the therefore reflects back to all of chapter 1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. The, the Hebrews, the Jewish Hebrew Christians, believers at that time, were, were drawing back. They were, they were beginning to have second thoughts. As I said in my Sunday school class this morning, they were, they were looking back over their shoulder a bit at Judaism. And some were being tempted to turn back to the old covenant and the ways of Judaism. Uh, they, had, they had quit gathering together. A little later in Hebrews we'll find where it says the admonition, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. Why is it there? Because what had happened is they started to not assemble together. They started to, to isolate themselves and draw away. And, and in essence what was happening is they were drifting away. They were slowly drifting away. And that's how drifting works, isn't it? It isn't a a blatant kind of thing that all at once it happens. It's a slow process where sometimes you don't even realize you're drifting. And the inference is they were drifting from what they had once held dear and what they had once suffered greatly for, actually. We will find that in the first part of Hebrews. We'll turn there in just a few weeks. Um, They had suffered some difficult things and even beyond that now they 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 were drifting they were they were backing up or being tempted to back up on who Jesus was they were being tempted to no longer worship him to no longer see him as they should or maybe maybe never fully did see him as they should have. But whatever the circumstance, they were, they were gradually drifting. And this inference of the scripture says, we must pay much closer attention. They weren't paying attention enough. And the drifting was coming. And the inference of this passage, although it doesn't specifically say it, certainly infers a foreboding in that backing up. And the foreboding of that backing up is that it will lead you to destruction. If you continue to drift, if you do not stop the drifting, if you don't start paying closer attention, 
you are on the verge of destruction. There are four other admonitions in the book of Hebrews similar to this. Four other times after this, there will be admonitions like that, warnings like that. And the inference of all of those warnings is that drifting will lead you to destruction. The whole idea, you can see the picture, can't you? You you drift along and all of a sudden the rapids come and the destruction comes. There's a reason that rivers drift. They drift because they're going downhill and eventually that can be a drastic downhill plunge. And the idea of drifting is if you keep doing it, if you carelessly do that, destruction awaits those who don't pay more careful attention. There's not probably any of us in the sanctuary that that don't know someone, possibly, maybe a number of people who have fallen into that, who have slowly drifted away from what they once held very dear. It's the nature, in, in many ways, of the church, the visible church. People come into the visible church, they make profession of faith in the visible church, And not just this church, but churches collectively. They make profession, but later drift away from those professions. And the inference of that, if it continues on, is destruction. There's there's a danger in that kind of thing. There's a danger in drifting and drifting away from that profession. And that's exactly where these people find themselves. That's exactly the context in which the writer of the Hebrew now Hebrews now addresses them. So the first thing about drifting is that drifting possesses great danger. We should not take lightly a cooling. Um, I've said this before in in my own walk with Christ. You know, that as you as you have days where you awaken in the morning and your thoughts are not at some point early on in that awakening of your creator and of your god if if that if that goes on it should it should it should cause us alarm there's a sense in which he's our creator our sustainer those who profess him ought to think of him often and as you begin to see in your life that you're thinking less it it should cause us some uncomfortable time in our lives. And, and that's what was happening. They were thinking of him less. They were drifting along. We need to be careful. The landscape is littered, littered by people who gradually walked away from their profession of faith in Christ. The second thing about drifting that I think is important for us to see in this text, first of all, it's dangerous. It's, it, it leads to destruction. But secondly, Drifting comes from listening. There's a reason drifting happens. It's, it's about listening. And really what this text is saying here when he says, pay more careful attention, is listen to him. Listen to this one that I've talked about in chapter 1. Listen to him. And drifting comes when we listen to the wrong voices as Christians. When we start to listen to wrong voices, drifting begins to develop, and and it's not sure which comes first, but they certainly complement one another. You start to listen to the wrong voices. You you start to maybe 
people begin to question this book. And somehow you begin to listen to those books or you just kind of hear that kind of constant um, noise that happens about those who want to debunk Scripture. And so you start to hear that even though you don't know you're hearing it. And, and somehow as you drift, you just slowly lose confidence in this book. That's, that's a voice you can listen. You listen too much to those who want to come against it and say it's old-fashioned or whatever, can't be trusted. And you start to listen to that to the point where it undermines your confidence in it. It's interesting in this text that one of the places he takes these people, if you go down to verse 3, it's the warning. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? The whole idea of destruction. But then he says this to, to bolster them. He says, this great salvation, he's referring to that, it was declared at first by the Lord, it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders. And he talks about there were three different ways that, that this whole message that they had received and they made profession of and they stood on Christ came to them. It came to them, first of all, by the Lord himself, by Jesus coming. He's come. He's spoken in his son. But then it was attested to. That's the point I want you to get. It was attested to us by those who heard. What is that? In my Sunday school class, we pointed out that that was the apostles. The, the apostles or those close to the apostles, those who had apostolic authority to write these words that eventually were collected as scripture. Various writings. And when it talks about he was attested It's these writings. It's this book. And if you listen to the wrong voices, you will tend to not listen to this voice as you should. It will begin to get drowned out and and your confidence in it. This is what we ought to listen to. This word. The word of the apostles. And he goes back to them. He takes them back to the words of the apostles. Listen to this. Listen, pay more careful attention to this. And one of the first signs of drifting is this, this doesn't have the significance it one had, once had. This word, you, you start to neglect it. It doesn't have the weight that it once had. And, and what happens is you quit listening to it. You listen to other things. There, there are always voices beckoning us to listen. And if you quit listening to this voice, you will hear other voices more more strongly and and you'll be subtly influenced by that. You must listen. Listen to this book if you're not to drift. And one of the things those voices will begin to say, one of the things we've talked about in this series, is that the voices of a world out there who doesn't value these words will start to teach you and tell you that plurality is the, is the way of the day. In other words, that all roads, all roads lead to heaven if we're sincere. And, and that's really the whole idea of, of tolerance to its extreme, that, that you, you are naive and you are bigoted if you, th- if you think that, that exclusivity of Scripture should be listened to. When Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, 
No man comes to the Father by me. If you listen to that, you're wrong. But, but that, in fact, is what Scripture teaches. One of the things about Jesus, that's what we ended last week, is He's God. We worship Him. And to worship Him along with something else is idolatry. Christianity teaches Him shall we worship. We don't worship multiple roads. We worship Him who is the road. I mean, that's, that's, again, what Christianity teaches. Now, Jesus taught other things. He taught us not to take a club to try to force people to believe that. In fact, He said the road to people believing that is your own suffering, is your own willingness to give your life away and to serve them and to love them. But that doesn't mean you compromise that. So you start to listen to those kinds of voices. You start to listen to things because you're not listening to this. And those voices get louder. You may listen to the voice of a world that demands mercy. We live in a world that demands mercy today. It's an interesting trajectory that happens with mercy, isn't it? Um, we get mercy, um, and so we get used to mercy. If you, if you get mercy, you start to get used to mercy. And the next step is you expect mercy. You, you get used to it, so you expect it. And ultimately what happens? You demand it. Um, we live in a world today that demands mercy, which which is an oxymoron. You can't demand mercy because mercy is undeserved. It, it has no place for demand and it. Mercy by its own definition comes from the heart of the one who extends it. It's not an obligation we put on them. It's an, it's an obligation that comes from their own heart to decide to do that. But we live in a world today that will tell you to demand it. To demand mercy. And, and part of what happens if you don't listen to this book if you don't see the totality of the message of this book, you, you begin to demand mercy and get you in all kinds of trouble. And as you demand mercy, you, you begin to play down sin. You begin to listen to a voice that sin is not a big deal. And, and as mercy comes, sometimes you think, well, mercy's come, sin has come, mercy's come. You just start expecting that. And then all of a sudden, when it doesn't happen, Anger flows out of us because we should have had it. We demand it. The, the voices of our world, the things we listen to in our, in our world, have that kind of a spirit about them. The Bible, the Scripture doesn't teach that. In fact, one of the things that, if you look at this book, one of the things we've talked about is the whole idea that some people want to say, I like the God of the New Testament, but this God of the Old Testament, I don't know. And they dichotomize a God that can't be separated. It's one God, not two different gods with two different ideas. Um, it's one God. Just this morning, somebody came to me before my Sunday school, so we had this discussion about the Old Testament. You, you read the Old Testament and you see some places where mercy didn't flow, but justice came. And harsh justice came. And... And, and so the reason people like the New Testament is because you don't read about that as much, but the truth of the matter, it is the same God. In fact, look at the text. Look at it. Don't just take my idea for that. Look at what it says. Verse 2, For since the message declared by the angels proved to be reliable, 
And every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. The message by the angels, there, there was a belief that the angels mediated the law to Moses. So when it says the message that came by the angels was the law of the Old Testament. And here the author says, For since the message declared by the angels proved to be reliable, every transgression and disobedience received a just retribution. Old Testament, some of the harshness of the Old Testament. Justice came, not mercy. But it was justice. Then it says this, and it turns it. If, if that's the case... Now, those who want to say, I like the New Testament God, I don't like the Old Testament God, you just need to read the rest of what it says. It says then, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? How shall we escape if we presume upon this mercy? We have to be careful. We have to understand that that the Scriptures... Speak. They, they speak in entirety. And in fact, one of the things that we move to is, is how is drifting, drifting remedied now? I want to I look to that. First of all, you know, drifting has great danger. Drifting causes, comes from listening to the wrong voices, letting them be loud, too loud, not hearing this voice. But then, how do we remedy that? How do you remedy Drifting. And the scripture says, by not neglecting this great salvation. And my contention is, what happens and, and where drifting comes in is when we fail to see this salvation for salvation, and particularly we fail to see it as a great salvation. We really fail to see the totality of what it means that in these last days God has spoken in his Son. When, when we fail to see that Old Testament and New Testament together tell one story, and what they tell us is that God is absolutely holy. Holy, holy, holy. Three times those words were spoken by Isaiah in the Old Testament. Not just because he couldn't think of the next word to say, but because that, that had an emphasis that meant God is absolutely holy. And God will, God will exact a just retribution for every transgression. He will. And at times, in the Old Testament, it was immediate. In fact, more times than not in the Old Testament, it was often immediate. Or at least in comparison to the New Testament, it was much more immediate at times. There are hints of that in the New Testament. Ananias and Sapphira, there were times, but, but not, not as intense in the Old Testament as in the Old Testament. I would grant that. But it still doesn't mean that it's not the same God. This God ex- extended mercy. But if you listen to the, to the wrong voices, you will begin to presume upon that mercy. You will begin to expect that mercy and ultimately demand that mercy which will get you in all kinds of trouble. What you need to see is, yes, we can draw near. We can. God does have mercy. But to see where that mercy is rooted is the remedy for drifting. 
to see it again and again and again and again and to see how great it is. My, my contention, my fear is oftentimes why people drift. Why we drift sometimes. People who make profession of faith and then they drift away is because they didn't get the full picture of what it means when you sing things like we sang this morning. Though to Jesus for refuge has fled. Jesus is a refuge. And we need to see him as a refuge. He's a refuge from from the just retribution that will come for every transgression. God will exact that. He must exact that. And he will. But for the believer, he exacts it in his son so that we don't experience it. He's no less holy in the New Testament than he is in the Old Testament. He's holy, and we want him to be holy, as I discussed with that person this morning, is that's the very confidence that we have. We want God to be holy. You want him to be holy. You want him to be just. Because if there is any iota of injustice in your God, first of all, he can't be God. So really, we're talking about a moot point here. But if there is, then what will cause him, what what would keep him from the other end after we have taken refuge in his son and we stand before him and he says, well, I changed my mind. I changed my mind. Folks, you don't want God to change his mind. The stakes are too high. The stakes are too high. We need a God who's absolutely holy. We want Him to be that. And the great salvation is that even though He is and we want Him to be, we can take refuge in Him. We, to Jesus, have fled. I've said the statement, I said to that person this morning that God in essence, what that great salvation is, is that God saves us from God. That's what salvation is. That's why it's so great. God saves us from God. God the Father, God the Son saves us from God the Father. Not because God the Father was reluctant Not because somehow there was something in him that wanted to do it and the Son talked him out of it. But from all eternity past, God, one God in three persons, planned together to provide a way that though we have sinned and deserve just retribution for every every transgression, way that that holy God could allow us to draw near. And it's incredibly important, it's incredibly important that that we see that again and again and again. We see the greatness of that salvation because the degree that you don't, I think it causes that drifting. And the degree that you don't keep paying attention to that, that drifting occurs. At one point, these Hebrews, many of these Hebrew people saw it clearly. 
In fact, they were willing to suffer great persecution for it. You'll read about that as you read through the book of Hebrews. But something had happened. And I think part of what had happened is they quit looking at it. They quit being reminded of it. And so here the writer of the Hebrews comes back to them and and reminds them, this is a great salvation. Let me tell you why. And the first ten chapters of Hebrews are telling us why. Why those two things can appear together. And we can have confidence. Confidence to draw near. You see why we, we, we dare not just flippantly play with these kinds of things. We need to understand them. We need to know the basis of them. Why can we come? It needs to be rooted in listening to what this book says. Let me read some of that and then we're going to come to the table. Turn with me to chapter 10 of Hebrews. We'll talk more about these texts later, but we've already referenced them in the first few weeks. But hear them again before we come to the table. Hear the basis by which you can come and receive these elements together today. Verse 12 of chapter 10. Let me just read portions of it. Let it, let it sink into your heart. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. He's made perfect forever those who are being made perfect. Justification, sanctification. But you've been made perfect forever. The reason you can come into the presence of a holy God and draw near is because God sees you as perfect because of the perfection of His Son that He has given you. And then you go down a little farther in verse 19. The very first weeks we talked about this. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, verse 22 says, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Don't neglect this great salvation. Don't neglect it for the first time. Maybe, maybe you've never experienced it. Maybe you've never put your faith and fled to Jesus in his refuge. Don't, don't neglect it the first time, but don't neglect it as you go along. The degree to which you neglect it, the degree to which you don't think about it, and, and sometimes think hard about it, and know the basis of it, I believe it causes us to drift. It causes us to live, listen to other messages. I believe that's why we have this this morning. I believe that's why we are to come together and we're to celebrate the Lord's Supper. It says, do this in remembrance of me. The remedy to drifting, the remedy to drifting is not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together. That's what the Hebrews were doing. They were starting not to come together and they were certainly if not coming together, not receiving the Lord's Supper. They were not remembering. They were not feasting on this great salvation. This morning as we come, I hope that that you will be strengthened, that you will be moved anew and afresh to not drift. Now, the final thing about drifting before we come to the table is the reason that this writer says pay more careful attention that you do not drift away, that you don't neglect this great salvation that will lead to destruction 
is because he was confident that truly people who have come to life in Christ, who've been born again, who have the Holy Spirit residing in them, and that's a definition of what it is to be a Christian. If we have not the Spirit of Christ, we don't belong to Christ. He had a deep-seated confidence that if the Holy Spirit resided in those believers and that he warned those believers not to neglect this great salvation, have his apostolic authority teaching comes, which came to be what we know now, the Word of God, and was the Word then. The Holy Spirit works with the Word to cause hearts to stop drifting. That's the means by which God preserves His people. It's the means by which God doesn't let those who have come to life in Christ go to destruction. So this morning, I hope that if you felt as we began that there might be some drifting happening in your life, that I, I hope also that you sense and hear the warning of drifting. That's what happens, I think, for God's people. They hear the warning. They respond to the warning. In repentance, they say, God, help me. God, help me. Help me pay closer attention. Prick my heart. That's what happens to believers. That's why Paul... I think the writer of Hebrews wrote what he wrote. The confidence that those who are truly in Christ will not drift to destruction. That's my hope as well. Let's pray. Father, I pray this morning that that you will be with us here as a people. That, Lord, we we will come to this table this morning with great confidence that, that, uh, Lord, you have have provided a way, a way that we can come into your presence, that we can come freely to this table with confidence, confidence rooted in your Son, that you provided a great salvation for us to which we're to remember as we come here today. Lord, I pray that, that if there are some here this morning, maybe for the first time, that realize they've never, they've never to for refuge to Jesus have fled, as the song said, that even before we come to this table, they will take refuge in your Son. They will, they will take refuge in his work, that they will realize that he made purification for their sin, and they will trust him and rest in him as their Savior. But for those who have, Father, done that in the past, who have fled to Christ, I pray that they will flee again, that they will They will be pricked again to take refuge in Christ. And if there's drifting happening, that you will cause them to stop and to marvel like today. Lord, we pray that you will strengthen us with grace now from this table. The grace that comes to your people through through the word, through the truth, through listening to what you have to say to us, Father. In Jesus' name. Like for those who are